So Numbers chapter 1, and we're going to kind of look at these, these first four chapters and kind of an overview of Numbers and help us understand how to approach Numbers and what it means to us as a believer. And, and I'm going to read some portions of the, the first couple of chapters here. And so if you're able to, if you want to stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Numbers begins with a a census. God tells them to take a census, and we see the different tribes, the 12 tribes. We see a a census taken. There's the tribe of Reuben and Simeon, then Gad, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph's uh, two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh are each tribes, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, all those uh, tribes, the census together equals 603,550 people, so perhaps around 2 million, I'm sorry, 603,000 of people, men old enough to fight, so maybe about 2 million people all together. And then you come to verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe, for the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp round the tabernacle. Then you come to chapter 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side, those to, to camp on the east side, and then he kind of talks about the different sides that the people will camp around the, te- the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and how they'll march out whenever they travel. Verse 17 again mentions the tabernacle at the, the center. It says, Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. Then we come, the first two chapters uh, give a census of the 12 tribes without the Levites. And then you come to chapter 3 and there's more attention drawn to the Levites. You come to verse 11, it says, God says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On that day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. And Heavenly Father, we do ask just your blessing on our our time as we look at your word. Give us joy and peace in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to see this morning if I can begin our time by describing for you some of the the differences between a, a passion and a hobby. Or an interest. The, the, the differences between a, a passion, a driving passion, and just kind of a, an interest or a hobby. 2011, there was an article written about Michael Phelps. 
and his, his training regimen. You know, Michael Phelps, the, the world's greatest swimmer, the, the most decorated Olympic swimmer ever. I, th- I think, in fact, the most decorated Olympic athlete ever, right, as of the last Olympic Games. Just a, a phenomenal swimmer and a very dedicated and passionate swimmer as well. The article was, was talking about how he, you know, he'd train at high altitudes in order to, to build his endurance. He would, he would train multiple times a day at the height of his training. He would not just kind of get in the water and splash around, but you know, he'd, he'd go from end to end of the pool over and over again, hour after hour, multiple times a day. And he would not just kind of pick one stroke and just kind of randomly swim. You know, he, he would pick a stroke and he would swim sometimes that stroke for very long distances to build his endurance and then sometimes with short bursts in order to build his speed. And then he would swim lap after lap just focusing on a certain element of each stroke. Lap after lap focusing on on the different things that he needed to improve, the the different types of turns and, and how to position his body in the water. The, the man was, was just this, this, this energy, this, this passion, right? And he didn't just kind of hop in the swimming pool with his swim trunks and goggles. I mean, he had kickboards and splashboards and buoys and uh, fins and uh, pull, I don't know, all sorts of stuff. He had this, this paraphernalia in order to, to help him focus on different elements of his stroke and to, to improve as a swimmer. He didn't just swim, too. He would, he would uh, do weights and push-ups and pull-ups and chin-ups and planks and crunches and curls and all sorts of things, right? He was passionate. It consumed his life. He had to eat about, I think, 12,000 calories a day in order to, to fuel his body with all the, 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 the things that he was doing. He's passionate about swimming, passionate about becoming the world's greatest swimmer. On Friday morning, I woke up, and I thought, hmm, it's been a while since I went swimming. I grabbed my goggles and swim trunks, towel, changed clothes, came here to Five Points, hopped in the water, splashed around a little bit, picked a freestyle. I did one breaststroke, uh, one, one lap that, but... Freestyle up and down for about 35, 40 minutes. Now, in one sense, you could say Michael Phelps and I are both swimmers, right? In other words, like, we both do more than float in the water, right? But what is that? That's the difference between a person who's passionate about swimming and, and someone who likes it. It's a hobby. It's an interest. God has told us he wants to be worshipped. In other words, God is, is telling us, look, I, I'm not a hobby. <laughs> I'm not something you can say, you know what, I, I've got these different things in my life and, and feel free to make me one of those things. God has told us, look, I, I'm to be your passion. I'm to be the, the all-consuming center of all that you are. In the text that we come to this morning, we're in a section of scripture where God has told his people, look, you need to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and he's also told them, look, this is, this is what it means to worship me. This is what it means to, have, to love me with, with your whole heart. And now in these chapters that we're looking at this morning, he's going to be showing us that 
he is to be literally at the center of the lives of the Israelites. In other words, not just, not, not just in a figurative sense, hey, make me the middle, but physically, literally, he just to be at the center of all that the Israelites do. He's to be at the center of their camp. He's to be at the center of their marches. He's to be at the center of their worship. Christ, represented there by the tabernacle, is to be at the center of God's people. What I hope happens this morning is, as we talk about these, these chapters and about the book of Numbers, I hope that you and I realize how, how dangerous it is not to have Christ at the center of our lives. Sometimes we deceive ourselves and we say, okay, it's, it's, it's permissible for me to have this life and, and this is my life and part of my life is my work and part of my life are my, my children or part of my life is my school or my friends. Part of my life is my, my parents. Part of my life is my hobby and part of my life is God. And, and I'm not saying God's not an important part. In fact, if you were to rank it, I might put God like at the top of that list, but, but God is a, is, is a part. That's a dangerous way for us to conceptualize our lives. And what, what I hope happens this morning is, is we recognize that. And we say, look, I, I want Christ to be at the center of my camp. I want him to be at the, the center of my being. I want to think through what it looks like to have him at the center of my home, at the center of my work, at the center of my school, at the center of my relationships with other people, at the center of my, of my, of my thoughts. I want to think through what that looks like. You know, imagine you have a, a bonfire, and when you have a bonfire, you know, you have the, the, the blazes, you have the, where all the fire is, and then you kind of have that, that pit that the fire is in, and oftentimes you might have a, a log that's off to the side. I kind of have those sometimes. I'm like, you know, you're next, right? And that log that's at the center, the, the logs that are at the center of that fire are just consumed by the fire, but then you have that log that's off to the side, and, and that log is it's affected by the fire, right? You, you touch it, and it feels warm. It's, it's near that fire. It's, it's being warmed and affected by the fire, but, it, but not consumed. What I hope this morning is we say, look, I, I want to be at the center of the fire. I want Christ to consume me. I want all parts of, of my life to be affected by him. And those parts of my life that are not him, I, I, want to be, I want to be done away with. I want them to be consumed by the fire of Christ. I want, I want to be in him and to have him in me. I want to burn off those parts of me that don't conform to his desires for me until every part of me is just ablaze with him. What I want to do in order to accomplish that is, that, first of all, I want to look at some New Testament passages that, that help us understand what's happening in the book of Numbers. And then I want us to kind of talk about three areas in which Christ is to be the center of all things. Here's the first thing. Let's look at some New Testament passages that help us understand Numbers. And the first passage is Hebrews chapter 3. And I want you to go ahead and turn there to Hebrews chapter 3, if you would. And as you turn there, let's kind of think about what's happening in the book of Numbers. Remember, in the book of Numbers, the, the people of Israel have left Egypt about a year, a little over a year ago, 14 months or so at the beginning of the book of Numbers. And throughout the book of Numbers, the, the people, there, there are people who are in the wilderness. In fact, <clears throat> literally in the Hebrew Bible, this book is called In the Wilderness. 
And so it's about a, a group of people who have left the bondage of slavery and have not yet arrived in the promised land. There are people who are in between. There are people who are in the wilderness. And in the book of Numbers, you see the people travel from Mount Sinai and there's a moment where this, this generation, this first generation in the book of Numbers, is called upon by God to obey them, obey him, to enter into the promised land. And they, they disobey because there's, there's a lack of belief. And then there's judgment. They're told, look, for 40 years you're going to wander in the wilderness and this generation is going to die. And then at the end of the book of Numbers, there's, there's another generation and this next generation, there's this, there's this hope that this generation is going to be faithful, that they're going to enter the promised land and believe God. So, in the book of Numbers, in, they're in the wilderness. They've left Egypt, but they haven't arrived at God's rest. Does that kind of sound familiar? <laughs> As we come to the New Testament, we, we see that we are often compared to the people in the book of Numbers. We are a people who have left the bondage of slavery to sin and yet have not yet arrived at God's rest. So, for example, you look at Hebrews chapter 3 and Beginning in verse 7, it kind of describes some events that take place in the book of Numbers. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit, this is Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He's talking about the people in the book of Numbers. There was disobedience. There was a failure to believe in him. And so he says, look, you're not going to enter the promised land. That generation isn't going to enter my rest. And then the writer of Hebrews applies it to us. And we see that we're warned to look at the example of the people in Numbers and not have an, un, an evil, unbelieving heart. He says, take care. This is verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And he goes on and continues talking about the application of this story in Numbers. So what are we? We're a people in between. We've left the bondage of slavery. We haven't arrived at God's rest. And he says, look, as you're here, recognize there's danger there's danger of, of not entering God's rest. There's a danger that, that you will not enter into God's rest if you haven't truly placed your faith in Christ, truly been delivered from sin. You're not going to, to believe. You're going to have this, this heart of unbelief. Next passage that I think is helpful. 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, again, we see this, this warning Look at the people in the book of Numbers and, and, and take heed. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they 
all drank from the, the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He's alluding here to events in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He's talking about these events in the book of Numbers. Now these, this is verse 6, now these things took place as what? As examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay, people, Believer, you are in the wilderness. You're in this, this time in between. And in this time in between, there's a danger that like the people in the book of Numbers who are also in the wilderness, you're, you're going to say, I, I don't love God, I love evil. And you're going to fall away. There's a danger. Let anyone, he says, who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. As we see the New Testament writers talk about the time in the wilderness, we see them use it as, as an example. Maybe some of you have, have sat in with, with uh, Kent when he's been teaching, and uh, Pastor Kent has often used that illustration of, of the a phrase his dad uses, and, and hopefully I, I get it kind of somewhat right. He said, his dad would tell him, hey, um, no one's ever a complete failure. You can always be a bad example, right? You can at least be that. I'm probably butchering that. But that's, that's, the, that's the idea. You know, you have in, when you're growing up or maybe you're a kid and your, your parents say, look, uh, look at that so-and-so kid in the neighborhood. Watch out for them. Look what's happening. That's a bad example, okay? These people in the book of Numbers, this generation that dies, they're a bad example. And it's a warning to us. Now, here's, here's the third passage. I'm not going to read it, but third passage might be Matthew chapter 4. Now, in Matthew chapter 4, remember what takes place at the beginning of the chapter? Jesus goes in the wilderness. And Jesus goes in the wilderness, and unlike the people of Israel, Jesus is absolutely, completely perfect in his testing. In other words, Jesus doesn't stumble. Jesus doesn't have unbelief. Jesus doesn't demonstrate his unbelief through disobedience. There's absolute, complete perfection as Jesus goes in the wilderness. Now, how does that help us? You and I are in the wilderness. We haven't yet entered into God's rest. And if it was dependent upon you and I to live in perfect obedience to God at this moment of, of this time of, of in the wilderness, we would be absolutely, com completely ineffective in being as obedient as we need to be. Our hope, our trust is in the one who went in the wilderness and was absolutely perfect, not just in the wilderness, but in every aspect of his life, who worshiped God completely and perfectly. And so what do we need to do? We need to cling to him, to Jesus. God is not a God who's a hobby, right? 
He's not a God who says, okay, um, kind of when you, when you need me, kind of, kind of pray to me and, and I'll kind of see what I can do and what I can work out. No, God is a God who is a God to be worshipped. And we are right now in a very dangerous time in our lives. We are people who are in the wilderness. This is a very dangerous moment in our existence. We've been delivered from sin and yet we haven't yet entered into God's rest. And God's call to us is to look at the people of numbers. And just like they needed God, we need him as well. And what do we need to do? We need to cling to him. God cannot be some object on the periphery of our existence. He is to be our consuming center. And I want to talk in the time that we have left about three ways in which we have Christ as the center. Remember in the as we went through and we talked about the tabernacle, we talked about how the tabernacle represented Jesus Christ and proclaimed the gospel and that sacrificial system. Now as we come to Numbers, we, we see the people numbered and their, their, their lives described. As we see their lives described, there's this thing that's at the center of their lives and it's the tabernacle. And I want to talk about how that applies to us as the New Testament believers and what it means for Christ to be in our center. The first thing that I want us to talk about is Christ in the center of your home. Christ in the center of your home. The book of Numbers begins and there is a census taken and, and you see all the different tribes listed and you say, okay, well, I'm counting the, tw- the tribes and there's 12, but Levi isn't among those 12 tribes. How did you get to 12? Well, the answer is Joseph, his sons become two tribes. So you keep the number 12, but you take out the Levites. You say, well, what happened to the Levites? Well, you come to the Levites in verse 47. They're not listed, and this is chapter 1. They're not listed along with the other tribes. They're, they're pulled out, and what are they doing? They're guarding the tabernacle. And it says they, the, the Levites are to camp around the tabernacle in verse 50, And then the people of Israel pitched their tents by companies, and so they are to be there as well. But the Levites camp around the tabernacle. Verse 2 of chapter 2 says, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. And here's kind of a picture of what that might look like. I'm not sure how well you can see that. But there, the very center is the tent of meeting. And then the Levites are around that tent of meeting. And then you have three tribes on each of the four sides. And the east side, the south side, the west side, the north side, you have the different tribes. And there's, there's three tribes on each of the four sides. Three times four, 12, right? Now, what I want to draw your attention to as we think about what God is telling the people to do in chapters 1 and 2. He's saying, I want you to camp. And when you camp, I want the tent to be at the center. Now, what does that word camp mean? It means very similar to what it means here in, in English. It's, it's different than dwelling it's not a home. It's, it's a camp. The, the word was used to describe armies that would surround a city and lay siege to it. It was also used to describe armies that would get ready to face one another. They would, they would encamp before the battle. But it also described what people would do when they were on a journey. And so you're, you're traveling from this place. You're traveling from this place. And you're trying to get to this place. And, and it's a long journey. And so what do you do? You travel, travel, travel. Camp, travel, 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 camp, travel, travel, camp. It's, it's a temporary dwelling. 
Now, God's people become campers. And it's not a camping trip that lasts the weekend or the summer. This is a camping trip that lasts over 40 years. Multiple generations are engaged in this camping trip. In the book of Numbers, we encounter the Israelites' summer camp, decade edition, right? I mean, it's just this, this long process. And what does this mean? The people of Israel, as they engage in this, in this, this, this life, it means the people realize on a daily basis we haven't arrived at our final destination. And as they live life, there's, a, there's an understanding of the temporary nature of the life that they're living. And as they live this life, the tabernacle is this physical reminder that God is to be at the center of their lives. There's this, this camping, and it reveals that this is a people who are on a mission. And it's a mission that, that has God at its center. Now, what's the significance of this for you and for me, the New Testament believers Two thoughts, two thoughts I'd give you. The first is this. Your home, we're saying Christ is at the center of your home. Your home is a temporary home. You know, God uses language, language to describe our, our home, our life in very similar terms, right? Your home is a temporary home. Now, I love my physical dwelling. I love the, the house that we live in. I think Whitney has made it just a, 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 a wonderful home. I love the things that she does with, with the, the plants and, and you know, the, the tree. She just has created a very lovely place in which to, to reside. But it's temporary. And as, as we talk about plans for the future, I want to do this here, I want to do that there. There can be a, a dangerous mentality in which we say, this is a permanent place. It's not. And the attention we give to it needs to reflect, hey, this is a temporary place. Now, more than my physical home, I, I love my children, right? I, I love my kids. But my relationship with my children is not my ultimate relationship. My, my role as a, as a dad is a, is a temporary role. It's not my permanent ministry. I, I love my wife more than I love my kids. Long after my children have left the home and started forgetting to call me on my birthday, um, I'm still going to be with, with Whitney. But that relationship as husband and wife, that's a, that's a temporary relationship in the sense of after, after we die, that relationship does not continue on into eternity the same way as it exists now. You say, well, are you saying the home isn't important? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is it's, it's a camp. And Christ, and, and our, our temptation is to say the home is, is eternity, my children are eternity. What is eternity? No. My, they are eternal. My ministry to them has eternal fruit, but they're not the end. We're on a camping trip together, and Christ needs to be at the center of it. So one thing I'd encourage you with, first of all, remember the home is, is temporary. 
Secondly, keep Christ at the center. You say, well, how, how do I do that? Remember Hebrews 11, it describes the, the people who, who were a people of faith. And it said, what does it say about them? It says that they, 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 thought, they thought about the things promised, the future. And as they, they thought about the things future, they realized that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, right? So, you know, I'm a stranger, I'm an exile, not my permanent home. Maybe you've heard the story of Frederick Barbosa. He united and, and led the German tribes in the 12th century, the German king. He died in 1190 as, as he was crossing uh, the river. He was, had all this, this armor on. And as, he, as he crossed the river, he, he slipped and, and drowned under the weight of his armor. You and I need to be very careful as we're on this, this camping trip that we don't, we don't drown. We don't become so consumed with these, these temporary things we forget, look, Christ has to be at the center of this. You know, it's, it's easy to become weighed down. We can become weighed down with, with our family, with our home, with our friends as we, as we pursue, physical, as we pursue uh, physical possessions, as we pursue temporary pleasures, as we kind of th- think in terms of entertainment and, and fun. It can be very easy. We can become weighed down as we as we have bitterness in our relationships. The place in which we live now is, is temporary. Our goals for our family, our goals for ourselves, can't be worldly goals, but they must have Christ at the burning center of all we do as a family. Another thing to think about here is, is Christ in the center of your vocation. Christ in the center of your vocation. You come to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, and I wish we had more time to get into all the details, you have all the different uh, camps arranged, the tribes around, arranged in this camp, and then as they begin to uh, go out and to travel, to do what God has called them to do, they, they, they leave in a certain procession. In fact, here's kind of a, a picture of that. You have Judah at the very front of the tribe. They're marching eastward. And then you have uh, Issachar and Zebulun with them. And then you have the tribe of Reuben. The, and then that group, the third grouping is Ephraim and the tribes with him. And then the, the last is Dan and the tribes with him. But if you look at chapter 2 and you come to verse 17, you see something about the middle. So the first couple of paragraphs talk about the two, first two groups of tribes. And then the last couple of paragraphs are going to talk about the last Two groups of tribe, but there in the middle in verse 17, what do you encounter? Again, there's the tabernacle. The tent of meeting. Then it says the tent of meeting shall set out. So after the first two sets, before the last two sets, with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, as they live, as they do the things of of life in those generations, living in that camp, same way as they set out. Each in possession, standard by standard. Now, this is their this is their work. This is their vocation. This is what God has called them to do. How does that apply to us? We too have been called by God to vocation, to go out into the world, to to proclaim the name and the excellencies of the God that we worship. God's people are to go out and to be a people. You and I are to call to go out and be a people, and just in the same way. As the tabernacle is in the midst of the people as they do their work, Christ must be, must be at the center of our vocation as well, be it as a student, as a mom, as a dad, 
as an engineer, as a teacher, Christ must be at the center. David Murray, in his book, Reset, mentions something that a lot of people say when he, when he talks to them about what they do. They say, I'm, I'm just, well, I'm, I'm just an engineer, I'm just a salesman, or I'm just a plumber, I'm just a, a teacher, I'm just a homemaker. And he says something that I think is very right. He says that the root of their answer is, is, is something that's unbiblical, an unbiblical view of vocation, of, of work, of calling. The wrong idea that only ministry callings are divine callings, that only overtly Christian work is worthwhile work. And, and here's what I want us to understand. The, the work that God has called you to do, wherever it is, is divine work. It's a holy calling, and it is work that Christ must be at the center of because it's what, it's what he has called you to do as you are a representative of him. You say, boy, I don't know, Daniel. How do I do that? How is that, how is that even possible? You know, I'm, I'm in a classroom and I'm, I'm listening to this, this teacher drone on about algebraic equations and I that's hard to see Christ at the center of. Or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a staff meeting and, and they're talking about some product line that I have nothing to do with. And it is, I can't even believe I'm here. I'm watching the clock slowly go on the wall. How in the world can Christ be the center of this? J- just a couple of thoughts. First thought is this. Um, work well with joy, right? For Christ to be the center of it, work well do good work and do it with joy. God has called us to do things, to produce things, and, and we should. Secondly, I would encourage you to pursue eternal goals within temporary work. And so you're there at a, at a place in which you're pursuing work that, that maybe you, you don't enjoy. I would encourage you to look, recognize that right now you're, you're in the wilderness and yet Christ can be at the center of that and you can be pursuing eternal goals within that temporary time. You have the opportunity at every moment of your day to love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. And you also have at every moment of the day the opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself. And every moment you can be pursuing the two greatest commands that God calls a person to pursue. So do that in your work. And then... Thirdly, I would encourage you, look, don't be surprised when your earthly work doesn't last. And, you know, a lot of friends kind of, kind of my age and, and maybe even just a couple years older, I, I just see a lot of us encountering a, a time of discouragement as, as we recognize, boy, some things that I, I thought were going to last in terms of the work that I was producing, they're, they're, I'm, I'm not seeing the permanency of the things that I'm working on. And you say, well, Daniel... Uh, <laughs> Excuse me, but uh, it's easy for you to say that. You're a, you're a pastor. You're doing, you know, you have a very illustrious job. And, and, and the things that you do, you, you should never struggle with that, which I would say, ha, right? You got to be kidding me. I do work all the time that's, that's, that's temporary. It's not bad work, but as I design structures or as I design, uh, you know, different structures for staff things or ministry opportunities or programs, those things, they don't last. We, as church, they're good things, but they're not, if, if my hope was on those things lasting into eternity, 
the Bethany logo lasting in eternity, I'm in a lot of trouble, right? And it's a danger for me that I can get discouraged whenever temporary things that I'm working on don't, don't last. But what can last? My love for God, my love for others, as we pursue our relationship with God for, together. The CEO of Amazon, the minimum wage earner, the engineer at CAT, the teacher, the pastor at Bethany Community Church, we all face the same dilemma. The earthly things we build don't last. We face that reality. So what do we do? This would be another thought I would have. When you feel discouraged and God confronts you with the temporary nature of your work here in the wilderness, same thing, cling to Christ. Say, boy, I'm glad for that reminder. I'm glad, God, thank you for the reminder that this thing that I'm working in, this thing that I'm working on, this, this project, you know, I had this idea of this legacy that I was going to have at the company. I had this idea of this, this legacy that I was going to have through this, this labor. It's temporary. God, thank you. Thank you for revealing that to me today through this. And God, help me focus on those things that are going to be eternal with you at my center. Here's last thing, Christ in the center of worship. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with the, the Levites more specifically. And, and um, just, just to kind of help you think about this as we go on through the Pentateuch, remember there's the tribe of Levi, and within the tribe of Levi there are, are three clans. So these are th- three clans within the tribe of Levi. There's the Gershonites, there's the tribe of Kohath, or the clan of Kohath, and the tribe of Merari. And the, the Kohathites are the part of the, the clan within the Levites that Aaron and his descendants are a part of. So, kind of see if you can picture this with me. There's the Levites, and then these three clans, and Aaron and his descendants are one of those clans, and they're the ones who are the, the priests. So, every priest is a Levite, but not every Levite is a priest, right? That's just one of those clans that can be Aaron's descendants that can be the priests. And the other clans are also, though, to be engaged in, in worship and are helping the people taking care of the, the tabernacle and those elements of worship. Now, real quickly, the Levites help the people worship. They help the people worship through the sacrificial system. Remember we talked about the challenge. How do you dwell in the land with the the, the tabernacle, with God's holiness? Well, the Levites help with the worship. But they also provide a substitution. The Levites point us to Christ as a a substitution. God says, "I'll, I'll look at the Levites and I'll take them instead of all the people. In the New Testament... Christ is the center of our ability to worship God as well. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whenever God is at the center of our worship, whenever Christ is at the center of our worship, our worship is not going to be self-centered. It's going to be consumed with Christ. We're going to love God. We're going to love others. And we're going to be consumed with the truths of who God is as we respond through worship. Not just singing on a Sunday morning, but, but throughout our lives. Last, last week I was talking with Pastor Art, and uh, we had lunch after we each were at each other's church. And he said, Daniel, last, last there, he said this morning, which was last week, as I was worshiping with the people at Bethany, 
uh, during the songs that he does, I, I was just, my, my eyes were filling with tears as I, as I sang those, those songs of truth about God with, with the people of Bethany. Now, now, why can he respond that way? Because Christ is at the center. Christ is at the center. It's easy to move Christ to the periphery, to the edges of life. But brothers and sisters, God is not a hobby, despite how easy it is in the North American culture to say, yeah, I'm a Christian and just put God over here in this category. He's, he's to be the center you and I are not to be kind of just warmly uh, associated with God, kind of a log on the edge of the pit of the fire, feeling kind of the effects of being in the church and kind of being a part of, of Christian things. But, but by God's grace, we throw ourselves in the fire in the midst of the flames of Jesus Christ himself and are consumed by him as we love him and we worship him through faith. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And Father, we want to be consumed by him. We want every part of us to be consumed by Christ. We want to burn off those parts of us that don't conform to your desire for us until every part of us is, is just representative of you and who you desire us to be. Give us your grace to have faith in your son, Jesus, like that. Show us those areas of our life in which We are not being consumed with you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.